In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Nothing can bring back a murdered loved one. But the justice system is the best thing we have at helping communities find closure and helping all of us find answers. While this verdict does not bring back our loved ones, it is a recognition by the justice system that the perpetrator of these heinous crimes is indeed a murderer and a terrorist. The Afzal family of London, Ontario, was beloved by basically everyone who knew them. They were murdered in cold blood by Nathaniel Veltman in June of 2021 when he intentionally drove his truck into them while they were out for a walk. Nothing about that is alleged anymore. Veltman was found guilty Friday in court. This trial, in which Veltman took the stand in his own defense and testified at length for parts of eight days, offers a window into the kind of crime judged to be motivated by hate and tried as a terrorist act. The first time that designation has been used in this country for white supremacy. Where did Veltman's hate come from? How did it twist him to be capable of such an act? Were there warning signs, points at which these murders could have been prevented? What can this trial teach us about the country that we live in and the online climate in which so many people now exist? How might the terrorism aspect of Veltman's trial inform his sentencing or even inform the standard for hate-motivated trials to come. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Wendy Gillis is a crime reporter with the Toronto Star who has been covering this case uh, from its beginning, I guess, to what is now almost the end. Wendy? Yes, we're, we are approaching the very edge. We'll get to the verdict and everything that it indicates in a few moments, but just uh, to lay the groundwork, because some people may not have followed our previous episode on this or, or might need a refresher, haven't read your work in the Star. Uh, what did Nathaniel Veltman do uh, in June of 2021? Nathaniel Veltman, in June of 2021, got behind uh, the wheel of his truck that he had recently purchased, drove through uh, London, and um, upon seeing a, a Muslim family Walking down the street, he floored the gas pedal, uh, steered towards the family, and struck all five of them um, on the sidewalk. It was uh, fatal for four of them, and the only survivor was a nine-year-old boy who is left orphaned um, and without his sister and grandmother. And this crime obviously uh, shocked uh, the community there, but resonated um, across Canada and who was the family uh, that he murdered? What did they mean to that community? 
Yeah, I mean, it it really resonated, of course, because within 24 hours, we knew that it was motivated by uh, Islamophobia. And the family that was struck was a uh, beloved uh, Pakistani Muslim family. You know, everybody seemed to adore them. They were very big participants in the in the London mosque. Yumna, who was the 15-year-old girl who died, had recently uh, painted a mural inside of the school. Each and every one of them was just overall very loved in the community. And um, when this happened, there was just an absolute outpouring of grief and of outrage over what had happened. And even beyond, uh, obviously, uh, the tragedy and its impact on the community and how, how much it resonated, uh, we spoke at the beginning of this trial that there was a reason beyond justice, like simple justice for the community, that this trial itself would be important. Can you explain why this was a groundbreaking trial? For sure. So Nathaniel Veltman was charged with four counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder in connection to the nine-year-old boy he survived. And a few days after those initial charges were laid, federal prosecutors put what's called terrorism enhancements on top of those criminal charges. Terrorism charges date back to Canada's anti-terrorism laws that uh, were enacted after 9-11. And they are intended to be applied in cases where a crime is not just a crime. It's a crime with a motivation that's intending to instill fear in the population or a section of the population. And it has to be motivated by, you know, political ideology, religious or an ideological um, motivation, such as, in this case, white nationalism. Now, traditionally, we have not seen white nationalism be designated to sort of the level of terrorism. Traditionally, we've seen it applied much more to Islamic extremism. So think about, you know, activity connected to groups like Al-Qaeda or ISIS. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen it applied in a case where it was alleged that it was uh, motivated by white supremacy, far-right ideology. And notably, there was a case, of course, you know, your listeners would, wouldn't forget the Quebec City mosque shooting that was found to have been motivated by racism and hate. Mm-hmm. There were terrorism charges that were applied there. And so when this happened, it was seen as somewhat groundbreaking for prosecutors to say, this is not just a regular first degree murder. This had a larger motivation and we need to make sure that this individual is charged commensurate with that, right? right? We just didn't know how it was going to apply. So this is the first time ever, not only that they were saying white nationalism equals terrorism, but also a first degree murder case that had a jury. They'd never been asked before to, to look at it as, as a terrorist attack. So that in itself was really uh, symbolic that it was alleged. And then certainly it only became more significant as the trial went on. Well, you've covered a lot, sadly, of first-degree murder trials. And over the course of this one, uh, how did you see the inclusion of the Terroristic Act change the way uh, that evidence was presented or change what kind of evidence was presented or the arguments that were made? Like, what was different about this? Yeah, that's such a good question, Jordan, because it's really interesting. I mean, prosecutors don't usually have to present a case that involves motivation. And so when there is an allegation of terrorism, that puts an additional onus on them to prove why somebody did what they're alleging that they did. And so 
In this case, we saw from the very first opening statement that the Crown made to the jury, they were saying, you know, he had wanted to send a brutal message. He, you know, had larger aims for what he was trying to accomplish with this. We, of course, saw that there was a manifesto that was written Mm -hmm. and it talked about how Muslim people were invading, called upon other white people to rise up. Um, It called for the creation of uh, white society. And so you can start to see how there is a much larger sort of political or ideological point that uh, he was trying to make through these killings. And that was something that the Crown was perpetually pointing the jury to. So it wasn't just, you know, planning and deliberation, which is the test that prosecutors have to meet to show that a murder is first-degree murder. There was a, a lot of that too, but it was also, here's why we say Nathaniel Veltman did this and why it's important for you to know about his views, about, you know, what he'd been watching, what he wrote and what he said and how it contributes to the message and the motivation. That was going to be my next question, which is just how did he come to be uh, so full of hate that he was driven to do this? What do we know about where this sentiment originated? Well, Jordan, we know a lot from the perspective of Nathaniel Beltman because halfway through the trial, when the defense started its case, the first witness called was Nathaniel Beltman. And he stayed on the stand for eight days. It wasn't eight full days. <laughs> there was a lot of legal arguments kind of in the middle, but... Is that usual for a defendant in a murder trial to be on the stage for that long? Generally speaking, if there's evidence that cannot be brought by any other means than through the defendant, then they will call him or her, you know, if if they think that it's important to the defense case. And, and it was because the only person that can really speak to what was going through in Nathaniel Veltman's mind you know, during the offenses is Nathaniel Beltman. Hmm. And so, you know, they they called him to testify about everything from his his childhood to his adolescence and early adulthood. And this overall story there is, you know, he he was raised in a very religious, you know, hell-fearing Christian fundamentalist uh, home. He was homeschooled. Yeah, that led to all kinds of issues, he said, in terms of you know, socialization. He was very isolated. Um, he had very strict parenting. And then he ended up leaving and going to high school for the last year and um, experimenting with drugs and just kind of, you know, on the other end of the spectrum. But ultimately, you know, he had severe depression. He said that he had obsessive compulsive disorder. That was That was certainly challenged by the crown at the end. He was diagnosed with having um, elements of autism spectrum disorder, another diagnosis the Crown really questioned about whether that was accurate. But, you know, he said he had some mental health challenges. He had mental illnesses. And as a result of that, he started going down this radicalization rabbit hole Mm -hmm. where, you know, he was finding far-right content, you know, everything from Infowars, Alex Jones, notorious conspiracy theorist. he was looking at white supremacy content. He was looking at what he said was initially sort of very uh, racist, jokey humor that, you know, was he didn't necessarily agree with, but he started to be interested in. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. And he 
started believing it. And he started going further and further down to this extremely horrific graphic content that included, you know, videos of the horrible um, attack in uh, New Zealand on a Muslim mosque that killed more than 50 people and um, reading that, that killer's manifesto. So when you take a step back and look at it, you see this gradual descent from, you know, allegedly just sort of dabbling in this far-right content to the, you know, most extreme violent content that you can can think of. And he says that that, you know, that addiction led to him believing that content and feeling this uh, intense anger that led him to want to go out and and kill Muslims. And it was very interesting to see, you know, the story of this radicalization then be sort of turned around and used as part of the defense, right? He was saying, I became addicted to it. And now there's really no doubt. I don't think there was before, but you can no longer deny now that this online material can translate into a real world tragedy. and, and, And that's something we really can't deny anymore. What about the physical evidence against him? What did we learn about how he intended and planned to carry out this attack? Because that's another element uh, of the charges, right? Absolutely, yeah. From the outset, to make this clear, it was really interesting to me to hear that um, the jury, once they were told how to apply the law in this case, they were told they could take one of two routes to first-degree murder. One was finding that he had committed a terrorist attack, and the other one was the more traditional, I guess, for lack of a better word, route to first-degree murder, which is that there was planning and deliberation, as I mentioned. So there was certainly a lot of that evidence that was brought forward to the jury, you know, starting with the purchase of this truck that was less than a month before. With financing, it was something like $36,000. You know, this guy is 20. He works at an egg-packing factory. He didn't have a lot of money in the crown, certainly before this allegation that he had no intention of paying for that truck ultimately because he knew he was he was going to be going to jail. Right. That was their allegation. You know, he he bought a bulletproof vest. He bought an army helmet, both of which he was wearing at the time of the killings. You know, he started writing this manifesto just about a month before um, and they went in and could see you know, that he'd been working on it throughout. And so certainly that suggested that he was, you know, thinking about what he was trying to do and and wanting to make sure that his message got out. There were all kinds of physical bits of evidence that they pointed the jury to to say, this is not someone who did this in the spur of the moment. This was considered, this was thought out, and here's, here's how we can prove that to you. In 2007... TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. This might be a little bit uh, tough to describe for some listeners, so I'll just warn them. But can you sort of walk us through uh, what we learned about what happened the day of the attacks? Well, yeah. I mean, we know that he went to work as normal that day, that he came home 
that he accessed uh, some of the the far right hate material online right before, um, including that he read the manifesto written by the New Zealand mosque shooter, you know, very shortly before he left the house. And then he drove out into the London streets and was on a Hyde Park Road, pretty, pretty busy thoroughfare, and drove past the family. They were on the opposite side of the street as him. And so they actually ended up showing us surveillance video footage that um, depicted his truck driving past the family. And then you don't see it. It's, you see his truck go off screen and then you, you know that he's performed a U-turn to be on the right side of the street, same side of the street as the Afzal family. And then you see him, him drive towards them. Now, I should, I should be specific that that video was never made public in terms of seeing the actual collision. And that was, you know, out of respect for the, for the family. And it wasn't necessarily, you didn't need to see it. We saw it right up into the point. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that he drove off without stopping. Um, there was truck data that showed that the, the gas pedal was depressed for, you know, fully for four seconds and that he drove away without, you know, there was no attempt to, to, to press on the brakes and then he uh, drove through the streets, ended up at a uh, mall, Cherry Hill Mall, and um, that's where he surrendered to the police. He drove up to a cab driver who had just been sort of starting his shift and having a coffee and, you know, said, you know, call 911. And that 911 call was played really early in the trial and is still so visceral. You know, you hear the cab driver saying, I'm you know, I'm with someone who says they hit somebody. And then you can hear Nathaniel Veltman's voice in the background saying, I did it on purpose. And uh, they they also did call that cop driver as a witness. And, you know, he talked about just his confusion about what was going on. And, you know, he initially thought that the driver needed help, which I thought was, you know, kind of heartbreaking. And then, yeah, he said that, that Nathaniel Veltman had asked him to record it. He asked him to record the arrest which the Crown then later pointed to as evidence that he was, you know, he was trying to build a narrative around what he was doing. He was trying to inspire others to commit similar atrocities and wanted, you know, the attention for it. Was that his original plan or was the attack supposed to continue? So one thing that came out during the trial was that he, according to him, I should say, Nathaniel Veltman had said that um, he experienced these urges to drive at uh, Muslims for more than a day before he ultimately drove down the Afzal family. And what came out that was quite, I think, shocking um, during his testimony was that he, a day before this atrocity, had driven to Toronto, where he was, you know, essentially scouting for victims. He was looking and experiencing these, these urges to drive at Muslims. And he said that he saw a group of Muslims and experienced this urge to drive at them and instead drove home. You know, we may get a little bit more into this, but part of his defense was that he had taken mushrooms, magic mushrooms or psilocybin, some 40 hours before he uh, killed the Afzal family and that he was still experiencing some of the after effects of that and therefore was in this, you know, dreamlike state where he wasn't really aware of what he was doing and was only experiencing these urges and not really thinking beyond that. 
So it was when he saw the Afsal family that he was no longer able to contain this urge in his telling. And, um, you know, at some point he, we heard that he was, you know, he could have kept going. He said a few different sort of conflicting things about whether he could have kept going. Since you mentioned it, what was his defense? Was it simply that he was on drugs? What else played into it? Uh, he was on the stand for eight days. He did a lot of explaining. It was a combination of the mental health issues his defense team said he was experiencing in combination with the magic mushrooms. And the basis for that defense was the testimony of two witnesses, of course, Veltman being one of them, and then a forensic psychiatrist from the Royal Ottawa Hospital named Dr. Julian Goger. And Goger and his team interviewed Veltman many times over the course of uh, the last two years. I believe Dr. Goger interviewed him for something like 18 hours, and he ended up writing a, a mental health assessment for the purpose of determining whether Nathaniel Veltman could claim not criminally responsible, you know, known as NCR, which means, you know, you're not actually responsible for what you did while committing a crime because of, you know, mental disorder. Hmm. Important to say that was not found in this case. Dr. Boger ruled that out as a possible defense. But what he did say was that the batch of mushrooms he took before, he said, have this after effect that can, in combination with the mental health challenges, create a scenario where he may not have known what he was doing. They also, his 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 mental health issues may have contributed to his you know, obsession with the far right, specifically, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder that could explain why he was consuming this hate material for, you know, 12, 14, 16 hours a day. And, you know, ultimately there actually were some some problems that arose from um, that expert testimony um, that the jury never, never in fact knew about. The judge, you know, expressed concerns about, is there an after effect to magic mushrooms? That hasn't necessarily been proven in a scientifically thorough way. Hmm. And they didn't really realize that until he was halfway through his testimony. And, um, you know, there, there were concerns that it had been put before the jury at all. But, you know, we, we end up seeing that the jury took six hours in their deliberation, which after a massive case like this with, you know, so many issues, it suggests they didn't spend too much time on that defense. As we talked about, this is uh, a trial that means a great deal to a community and uh, also a really high-profile one. What were your takeaways from the time you spent in the courtroom and, and what you heard about uh, the atmosphere there from others? I was there for the first week of the trial, and it was happening in Windsor. And, you know, we can now report that the, the reason the trial was moved from London, Ontario, where this took place, to Windsor, was in fact because there were concerns about finding an impartial jury. You know, obviously this was such a high profile attack and um, having it be in London, the defense was concerned that they would be able to find anyone who, who didn't already have their minds made up about it. Right. So they moved it to Windsor and there were additional security measures in place. Like I was surprised when I got there that I had to go through two levels of security even after going to the bathroom, you had to go through another security check going back in. I think there was just a lot of concern that this was going to attract a lot of people and that that required um, some additional safety measures. There were women that were there and one of them told me, you know, it was incredibly important to be a visible Muslim woman in the courtroom on a regular basis. You know, they went as frequently as they could 
you know, this woman was wearing a hijab and she felt that it was just incredibly important for that to be a visible presence in the courtroom. And I, and I really, I really found that moving. Um, she also mentioned, you know, because the trial had been moved from London to Windsor, there was a live feed. Trials in, in the 20, in 2023, you know, it's a, an interesting aspect, like that some of them are now on Zoom. That's how I covered the majority of this trial. And um, it allowed for even a trial that was taking place in another city to be broadcast in the London um, courthouse. And so she said that, that their feeling was they wanted, you know, in solidarity with people that were watching in London to, to see Muslim people in the courtroom as well. Right. When the verdict came down, people tell me that, that it was a full courtroom and you could see that in the Zoom as well. I heard someone cry out uh, after the first how do you find the defendant, you know, guilty of first degree murder? Like that, that was definitely, you know, an emotional moment for people that were there. One person told me, you know, it felt like the weight of the last two and a half years was suddenly released off of everyone's shoulders. And so, you know, an incredible amount of relief um, in the span of, in the span of just a few minutes, you know, starting with a lot of anxiety. What role does the terrorism aspect of the charges play in uh, the verdict and the sentencing, or do we not know that yet? I'm trying to figure out what happens now. The jury only had to agree on the destination. They didn't have to agree on the route. So each person could decide, okay, this is obviously planned and, and deliberate. He's guilty of first-degree murder. Or this is obviously a terrorist attack that was intended to you know, incite fear. It was ideologically motivated. That makes it first-degree murder. Of course, they, they could have also thought both of those things. But jury deliberations in Canada, we don't ever know what happened during them. And so we don't know how they came to their decision. We only know that they found him guilty. And so that becomes important because I think the general public, I know that legal observers, I know that you know lawyers, everybody is very curious to, to see this defined as a terrorist act as it is outlined in those anti-terrorism laws that I had mentioned. And so there's certainly an expectation that this trial judge will make a finding of fact that is open to her to do based on the evidence that she heard when she makes the sentencing decisions. She can make findings of fact based off the evidence. And when will we know? December 1st, they are back to set a date for that sentencing hearing. You know, there'll be victim impact statements um, having sat in on on a few of those, I know they can take a long time, especially for you know a very very high profile case that impacts not just you know a family but a, but a broader community. We'll get those victim impact statements, and then the judge I would expect would come back with her her written decision sometime early in, in the new year. Wendy, thank you so much for this. Um, it's a really tough trial. I'm glad uh, the community seems to have some sort of closure. Well, thank you for having me. I really feel strongly about covering this um, thoroughly. And, um, you know, I think we, we can't forget that this happened. That, that's the most important thing to me is we have to be aware that, of how this happened and why it happened and, and to make sure that nothing like it can happen again. Wendy Gillis, crime reporter at the Toronto Star. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can listen to Wendy's interview from the beginning of this trial to find out if she got the answers to the questions she had when it began. You can find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can email us. The address is hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And you can call us and leave a voicemail. The phone number is 416 935 
1-800-529-5935. The Big Story is available in absolutely every podcast player. And wherever you find it, please like, rate, review, subscribe, whatever it lets you do, and just tell a friend. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.